Markets are turbulent, inflation is soaring, wars and supply chain shocks are threatening our way of life. We hear it all over the news. There is nowhere to hide. But is it really true? Bad news just keeps getting dumped on you by the oh-so-average media. But we at Not Your Average Financial Podcast believe you deserve something better. We don't believe in wishful thinking or burying our heads in the sand, but we do believe in telling you like it is and showing you a way out. Could it be that there are some safe havens, some opportunities and even possibilities available in this current economic climate? Attend our virtual Not Your Average Financial Summit to know if there's truly nowhere to hide and to discover strategies to help you win in any economy. So come and build up your financial reserve, fight back against inflation, save on taxes, and prepare for your future. The two-day Not Your Average Financial Summit is happening virtually, so attend anywhere. Add these dates to your calendar now while it's fresh on your mind. It's going to be Friday, September 30th and October 1st, 2022. Each day starts at 1 p.m. and goes to 4.30 p.m. Central Time, so please adjust to your time zone. The event is absolutely free, but the tactics and strategies you'll get are priceless, and it's only made available to members of our Not Your Average financial community. So get exclusive access to our summit at notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. That's notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. See you there. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 263, Be Unconstrained with Miles Wakeham. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm so glad to have you with me. I want to start with an old phrase that someone taught me a long time ago, maybe in high school. The phrase is, whatever doesn't kill you just makes you stronger. And that's especially true in the Australian outback, where basically everything moving there is trying to kill you. But what would you do if you earned it all and then you lost it all? How would you react? What would happen to you? both internally and externally, personally and professionally. Now, there are times in life where you cannot control what's going on around you. Sort of like a passenger in the car headed toward a collision. There's really not a lot you can do. But you can still ask, what control did I have over that situation? That's just part of being alive. It's just part of the human existence. Things that are going to happen to us. But it's what we do have control over is how we react to our situation, to our surroundings. Nobody can tell us how to feel, how to think, how to react in our given circumstances. Miles Wakeham is an Australian who migrated to the USA in 1989 and has since become a multi-millionaire. He lives a 100% free and unconstrained life. He is a self-made business-focused technologist who was one of the early members of biotechnology corporation Amgen, which is now the largest biotech company in the world. He made his fortune on Bitcoin since 2011 and owns a portfolio of rental properties. Miles was one of the few survivors of a massive auto accident in the outback of Australia in the 1990s, which forced him to question life, purpose, and his direction. 
Since rebuilding himself from that, he knows how to handle and mitigate adversity, including taking advantage of medical tourism all over the world for major surgeries. And he has honed those skills to live a life unconstrained. So I won't make you wait any longer. Here's the interview with Miles Wakeham. Miles, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. We first have to hear your story. Get us to the present day. You started on another part of the planet. So get us to how you landed in this neck of the woods. Yeah. So I'm from Adelaide, Australia originally, which is a city on the south central coast. I grew up there. I lived there until I was 25. I did not have a traditional Western upbringing. My story is very atypical. People often call me a contrarian. I, I don't necessarily know why I get that title, but it's probably because I came from very unusual background and in a very unusual way. So I was raised very young in life as a musician. By the age of 12, I had been in the junior symphony orchestra in my state. I pretty much used that to skate through school. I didn't have to work very hard. I wasn't a great math student. I wasn't a great anything student, but I could never connect the dots as to what I was learning in school with what the real world was teaching me having experienced a lot of it early on. At the age of 15, I convinced my father to let me leave high school before I graduated and go out and start a software company, which in the 1970s was unheard of, but I've always been a bit of a frontiersman. I did that. Uh, by the age of 25, I had a company with a bunch of people working for me and had done some big projects with the Navy, with big corporations around Australia. By about that age, I got bored which is weird because you're that young and running a, a software company. I ended up going on vacation to Hawaii, uh, met a girl, ended up moving to California, got married and lived in the United States at a young age. Couldn't work out what I wanted to do in the States. I'd already had a pretty ambitious career in software, but there was still the emergence of computers in the late 1980s when I landed. So I went looking for work in that and just got told no at least a couple of dozen times over and over. It just got boring after a while. You know, didn't have the right paper, you know, didn't have the right credentials, didn't have the, didn't go to the right college. Meanwhile, I'm looking at going, you know, the database that you're running. I wrote the underpinnings of that database, but it's like, well, it doesn't matter. You don't have the right paper, whatever. Okay. Eventually I fell into a startup in uh, Southern California that was a, a, literally a meeting in a in an old mobile trailer in a parking lot because these guys were still building their buildings and they sort of had this idea. They were telling me all these crazy ideas about medicine and biology and stuff I had no idea about. But they said, we need somebody to build our computers and our networks and set us up. And I said, well, that I can do. So I said, do you want to place a bet on me? I'll place a bet on you and we'll see how it goes. I guess five, six years later, that company became the world's largest biotechnology corporation. It was Amgen. And of course, they give you a bunch of stock options, which I didn't even know what that was. So when I left there, I cashed out at the age of 32 and never really had to work another day in my life. That's a double-edged sword. You sort of think, I'm successful. It's like, you know, you're not. <laughs> you're this young upstart. You don't know what the hell you're doing. But I got called back to Australia because my mother had a car accident. I had to go back there with my wife. And then as it happens, when Frodo returned to the Shire, he didn't do so good because I got divorced within six months and lost half of everything I owned. Then I was in a massive car accident in the outback of Australia and then being in a coma for a couple of weeks and then coming back disabled and then having to fund all of my own medical because of a whole bunch of weird insurance regulations in Australia and basically lost everything. 
went from hero to zero. So actually, I guess I went from zero to hero to zero. And at that point, you sort of realize this ain't the better roses that I thought it was. So, but he had at a relatively young age. I thought, well, you know, I'm going to make the most of this. So I did. And I pulled myself back up out of the ashes. And, and then at that point, I ended up getting remarried and then decided in 99 to return back to the States because there was this thing called the dot-com boom going on and I wanted a piece of the action. So I did that within six years, I guess. I was a multimillionaire, mainly on the back of real estate, of all things. And then uh, 2008 happened. And then, of course, what happened to real estate? So I lost, I went again from hero back to zero again. And, but I had a little bit of money left over, mainly because I was doing a lot of international diversification. And I ended up buying everybody else's foreclosures. So by about 2014, I'd made five times what I'd made in the high amount. And at that point, it was like, I'm never going never gonna to work another day in my life. And at that point, I felt like I actually earned it because it wasn't just a lucky stake like I got with Amgen. This was like, I earned this. And I guess ever since then, I've just traded on that. I, I've always been somebody who's very interested in the human experience, has interested in passion and finding your purpose and, uh, and traveling the world. And I learned my lesson from 2008 that international diversification got me out of this. And so I decided to start buying things up around the world and, uh, that worked out very well. So that's kind of where we are today. There are so many people who go through life, semi-charmed life as they, as the saying goes, but then there's the rest of us who have made it through a couple of blender moments, life throws us in a blender and out we come. Tell me what the voice in your head was saying when you were recovering from this horrific accident and financial disaster and more. What was going on in your head to, to get you to a point where you said, I'm willing to give it another go. I'm not done yet. What was that like? I remember when they were cutting me out of the car, they had those guys, it was in the outback. We'd, I was in a car that ended up going into a flash flood at high speed, no signs posted over the crest of a hill and then splash. And then he head on into a semi-trailer coming the opposite way. So it was pretty horrific. When they were waking me up, I did this immediate cross check and I said, fingers, do they work? And I moved them. And said, yeah, they're good. I said, legs, feet, do they work? And I moved my feet and I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Okay. I'm going to, I can handle this. I can get through this. Obviously the hard work came later. But all the way through that process, you switch your mind off or you're in the moment, you're getting through the moment and then you get through the moment. And it's not until probably three or four months later that you have the time to sit back and look back on it and go, what did I learn? What could I done better? Obviously you can't do anything better in a passenger in a car, right? Mm -hmm. But you say, what control did I have over the situation? And that's the thing. This is the one thing I try to tell my daughter a lot. There are times in life where you cannot control what's going on around you. It doesn't matter what you're in, what business you're in, whether it's the financial markets, whether it's a car accident, you've got cancer diagnosis, whatever it is, you, your parents are in a nursing home, whatever the situation is, you cannot control those things. That's part of what happens when you get born and life is a struggle. All right. So we get past that. The one thing you do have control over is how you react to it. Nobody can tell you, you can change the outside, but you can change the inside. And what I realized was that there was something I could take from the whole experience. And that was what does not kill you makes you stronger, right? So when I got back on my feet and I got back into business and I was just working the jobs and making the money and saving and all of that, anytime I had an adverse event, 
whatever it might be, like the dot-com crash of 2001, what didn't kill me makes me stronger. I could look at that and go, that's nothing. Look what I just got myself out of. When 2008 came about and I lost all my you know, equity in real estate or whatever, and I thought, oh, we're all going to go down and talking to bankruptcy lawyers and all that stuff, which I never did. I looked at it and go, I got through a car accident that almost killed me. This is nothing. <laughs> right. And and so it's been something where I don't like to pass judgment on other people because that's their, they have their lives, I have mine. I can only control me. But I can say that anybody who comes to me and says, oh, I just got wiped out because I bought GameStop or something, I, I'm like, really? <laughs> you think that's hard? I'm not going to, I'm not going to, well, let me tell you what's hard. I'm not going to do that, but I'm looking at it going, you haven't been around the block yet, have you? And all of a sudden, when people start going around the block, then I want to listen to their story because I know I, I'm interested in how they experience, how they got through their calamity. Somebody who survived cancer or something like that. that those stories are of interest to me. Roy Bennett has a quote. He says, instead of worrying about what you cannot control, shift your energy instead to what you can create. And the shift in your mindset uh, from, hey, this thing happened to me, to here's what I can create as a result of it. I mean, remember, everybody, kites fly against the wind, not with the wind. So how can we lift your kite amidst the terrible things that have happened for you, Miles? You've taken that and you've risen again. That's wonderful. So, okay, so you've taken us to today. Thank you for that story, by the way. I appreciate your honesty and vulnerability. You have some contrarian views to say the least, you were a early investor in Bitcoin. Tell me what was that like? What was it about Bitcoin that attracted you back in 2011 of all times? That's very early for Bitcoin investing. What caused you, what attracted you to it? What did, what was the potential you saw? Software developers, which I guess I'm, I have to class myself as, are inherently problem solvers. And what that means is we look for problems out there that we can find a solution for. The same is true of any, any engineer, really, in any sort of capacity. There was a big problem going on in the world about that time. We'd just come out of the 2008 crisis. Uh, we had the Occupy Wall Street movement. Banks were not popular. What had typically happened prior to that is we'd seen that money was being controlled by what appeared to be a very small number of people at a macro level. And that that was causing some issues because... The government's response to those things was to continue to print money, continue to indebt the country on the basis of a sort of a short-term fix to a, what was effectively a long-term problem. And I think a lot of people like me saw flaws in the way that technology had evolved. And I, it was funny, I was having a conversation with somebody this morning about this. It's like, I can send an email to anybody in the world and they'll get it instantly and it costs nothing. And I do, if you're as old as I am, you will remember the days when you used to have to send airmail and postage stamps and it took days and cost money. Email is one of those instant network effects that we get from this thing called the internet. And when you can send communications in that manner, everybody would ask, well, why can't I send money the same way? Now, the thing about money is that whereas an email has an email server, there are effectively what we would call counterparties between the protocols. When it comes to money, there are counterparties that are basically, why are they there, counterparties? The idea of something like, say, a Visa MasterCard transactions. I go to my local shoe store and I want to buy a pair of Nikes and I give them my credit card. And what happens? They, they get a, an approved deny from a third-party merchant vendor who then 
books the transaction into a batch that then goes through that night and then 72 hours later they get a mass deposit in their bank account and then at the end of the month they lose a big chunk of that money back in fees that goes to the counterparty who handles the, the concept of risk if i give them cash there's no risk they take the cash from me they i get the shoes we're all done there's no counterparties at all the problem was that in a world where you have the beauty of that sort of a transaction based on cash it's impossible to do that electronically. I cannot put $20 bills through the internet, right? I have to have an on-ramp and an off-ramp. And what's happened is that traditionally, when it comes to money, the on and the off-ramps have become trolls. Trolls on the bridge, they have a, they want, well, I understand, look, if they built the bridge, someone's got to pay for the bridge, I get it. But at the end of the day, I know as a technologist, they didn't build the internet. And I can sit bytes, bits and bytes through any network switching into the internet. And it doesn't make, it, bankers have got nothing. There's no skin on the game for them. So I ended up looking at this whole thing going, this is really crazy. What made it even worse was at the time I had a guy who was working for me who was in Pakistan and he was a brilliant programmer, but he lived in a country which was not a reciprocal banking partner with the United States. So I could never pay him with PayPal or Venmo or whatever it was at the time. I had to send money, either expensive wires to his bank, which was like 75 bucks a transaction, or... Western Union, which was me running down with a bunch of cash to the local supermarket to the MoneyGram center and getting these people to send MoneyGram to this guy. And then by the time he got it, he lost 27% of everything he earned. And I said, this is ridiculous. I can send him an email. Why can't I send him money? That's when Bitcoin got on my radar. And all of a sudden I realized that there has to be a better way, right? We're living in this prehistoric world of existing banking structure that was not supportive of where the future was, where commerce was being done. And that's why I, I was a big proponent of Bitcoin. And, and so I did that. I bought a very large chunk of it, put it in a wallet, and was for the purpose of paying this guy only to see it go up 1,800 times what I paid for it. 1,800 times. 1,800 times, yeah. So at that point, it was like, oh, okay, it changes everything now. And I, so I, I became that annoying guy who was talking about Bitcoin all the time back in the, you know, 10 years ago. You know, I did. I rode the wave until about 2018. And then all I saw was that 2018, every, every brother-in-law wants to talk to you about Bitcoin and that sort of thing. You know, I was talking about it a few years ago when you should have been listening to me. <laughs> Whatever. It's fine. But now you want to buy it when it's like 20K. No. And that's when I started telling people about what I'd really learned when I was a teenager and what really made sense. And it's what I call the surfer mentality. And if you indulge me, I'll tell you the story. So when I was a teenager, I learned how to surf with all my buddies. It's what you do in Australia. We're a coastal country. And like anything, you go out there and you get wrecked. You go out with a surfboard and that thing's going to, those waves are dumping you and you're hitting the back of the head with the board. And you're saying, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. Uh, but something drives you to stay out there day after day. And eventually you start realizing after you, I guess it's like anything where you do something enough, you start to see the actual reality of what's going on. You start realizing I'm just a little grain of sand in the ocean here and these big waves are coming and there's a pattern. And what the pattern is that I can catch the wave if I'm in front of it, prepared, paddling ahead of it. And then what happens is it comes up behind me with this energy and it picks me up and it transfers 
the natural energy experience of the wave to me and I get the ride of my life. But if I sit there trying to catch it when it's on me, it's going to hurt. And if I try and catch it after it's gone past me, well, what's the point in that? And I realized that's life. That's everything. That's the markets. That's Bitcoin. That's real estate. That's every single thing. Once I realized that I am doing nothing more than the surfer trying to catch the wave, I just have to pick my wave, be prepared, get wet and get out there. And it, I'm not going to catch every wave, but I only need one or two good ones to have a great day. When I got that, I realized that the universe has all of these things in it that sound all spiritually. And I'm, you know, I'm not that guy. I'm a very basic guy, but things that go up must come down, right? The sun rises, the sun sets, moon goes up, moon goes down. The north and the south pole of the planet must be balanced or the planet will fall off its kilter and we'll all die. There always has to be ups and downs. And when you artificially manipulate the ups and downs to try to only ever have ups, so that, you know, every child wins a prize and everyone's a participation trophy winner or whatever. It can't work forever. At some point, there has to be counterbalance to it in the same way that the wave can never always be cresting. At some point, it's going to reach its peak and dump. And I carried through that perspective as a technologist because you're always punting on the future. And I realized that our life is all about entropy. We're all going to turn to dust. And it's really about us picking the right wave. And the only way you're going to pick the right wave is to go and get wet. You're not going to pick it on the beach being a spectator going, oh, that one looks really good. Well, yeah, but you're not catching it, are you? So you can't Monday morning quarterback life and you can't run it from a spreadsheet. You, it's a participation event. You've got to be out there doing it. When I started putting all that together, I could connect the difference between an investment that is something you're vested in because you're a part of or a speculation, which is something where you're the Monday morning quarterback on the, you know, on the guy on the beach pointing at the surfer on the wave. Spectating isn't all that enjoyable after a while, right? You can get the odd win, right? Just like a casino gambler. You can go in and throw, you put all your money on red or black or whatever, but you're never really in the game. I can't live a life like that. I have to be in the game. I want to be in the water, you know, in the game. I want to be vested in it. So I tend to be somebody who's a, a, an investor, not a spectator. I know it doesn't talk to your point about contrarianism, but what I found, and this is the summation of this, is that a contrarian will look at life from a pragmatic viewpoint of what works based on real actual participation in it. And, I, and that's why I go into the burning buildings and I buy the stuff when no one else wants it. And every time I did that, I was the surfer looking at the wave on the horizon, getting prepared. I just bought a big, big chunk of land in Mexico and I'm developing it. I, I've done the same in other countries. I've done the other, same in other regions. I've gone into places, people go, are you nuts? Why would you want to go in there? For example, like I'd be the guy going into the Ukraine right now because I want to build hospitals because there's a need and people will pay money to go to hospital. That's me. I, I'm, I'm happy to do that sort of thing. I guess that makes me contrarian to most people, but to me, it's just a need versus a, a response. It's easy to call ourselves something like contrarian or not your average, but then it gets really tricky when you're running into that burning building or you're swimming toward that mega wave or whatever, uh, when everyone else is safely on the beach. So what's it like? What's the hidden pitfall that you can say that you've been through the tech bubble, you've been through the real estate bubble. You were buying houses in foreclosure in 2014. 
what's it what's the hidden pitfall that prevents other people from chasing those waves via courage in yourself maybe that is a product of coming out of the car wreckage maybe that's what you get you don't have a you're not you're not on this sort of suicidal mode at all but you also realize the limits have changed the the boundaries are, are wider now i realize what i can do what i can get through these things and i'm not fearful to try to test it. You also got to realize I grew up in a country where anything on the ground will kill you, whether it's a snake or a spider or a jellyfish in the ocean. And I have been in ICU from a jellyfish bite before. I know what living like that does to somebody, what it does to your mind. It, it hardens you and you learn to do, you learn to do something which I think more people should learn. And that is risk mitigation. You understand how to measure control and manage risk, learn to dance with the devil. And when you've done that, you can go ahead and do these things with confidence. I'm no guru or expert or magic. I've got no magic pill here, but I do look to people who have done similar things in their particular toxic environment or hostile environment and came out and succeeded in it. And they motivate me. And I I look at, I'm a big fan of Formula One, for example. I look at guys who are racing around at the, you know, about to kill themselves at 300 miles an hour or whatever. And, and to me that it's like you, you've learned how to draw from you something that very, very few people get to do. There's something in that. That's, that is a representation of the human, of the best of the human. You know, we have one characteristic, which is incredible that makes us so much different to other species. And that is we are at our best when time is at its worst. I want to be at my best all the time. I really do. And I try, I, maybe I beat myself up too much about it, but I try to push myself at that level. And that means that you tend to go to where you can have best impact. So yeah, I guess that's kind of how it works. It's clear that you have seen waves coming in the past and have learned how to ride the waves. I've got a, a couple of great surfing stories from my days in Australia myself and cut my finger on a surfboard and a little blood in the water. And I look out on the horizon, out comes a, a shark fin or what I thought was a shark fin. So yeah. <laughs> got to watch out for those. That's so true. That's Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of sharks uh, on those beaches for sure. As we wrap up, what's one bit of advice you could leave folks? And then how can folks find you to get to know you more? I have a website called beunconstrained.com and that's where they can find me. As far as uh, leaving you with some advice, I would say that there are four words that struck me very deeply, which I think should probably be resonated in everybody's minds. And it goes like this, the rich don't have jobs. If you think like that, you'll start understanding why they're rich and the rich are rich because they owned assets. Assets can be acquired at any point in your life, the earlier, the better, of course, but you want assets that pay you to own them. And I, I got my freedom where I didn't have to turn up to work every day and I didn't have to do what the boss told me because I owned assets that paid me to own them. And that freedom is very, it's priceless because it allows you to do the things I do. It allows you to do more than the things I do. It allows you the freedom to travel. And, and when COVID happened, who cares? I've still got renters paying me rent or vending machines where I can pull coins out of it. Assets that pay you to own them are priceless. And at a time when people are clamoring for following the shiny object on CNBC or Bloomberg or whatever, I would say this, look, if you're investing in anything, make sure it pays you a dividend because if it does, then you've got something that can probably outlast the ups and downs of the waves of the markets. 
And I would also say, most importantly, be your own everything, be your own bank, be your own power company, be your own communications company, be everything, be a sovereign individual and have, and build meaningful relationships with everybody else. If you do that, you're in control. And, and ultimately if you're living in a world of reactive despair, it's probably because you're not in control. And getting in control is a really nice way to live a life. Said, and we totally agree on a lot of things, including being your own source of financing, being your own banker and uh, being your own power company. I'd love to hear more about being your own utility. That's great. Thank you, Miles, for coming on today. And obviously, guys, go check out the Be Unconstrained uh, website. We'll put the link and everything in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for everything you're doing and for the perspective you bring to money, but more than money, just life in general. Miles, thanks for coming on. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you again, Miles, for a great episode. The conversation that I get to have with these incredible guests on our show just really floor me every time. And Miles was no different. Today, he brought up this metaphor of the wave. And this wave really captured my imagination. First of all, what caught me was that we are simply nothing more than a grain of sand in the grand universe, getting pummeled by the waves, getting crashed upon the rocks. But if we know how to manage the energy of the wave, even as a small grain of sand, we can jump on the power of the wave at just the right moment and take the ride of our life. He mentioned that this metaphor applies for him and not just in finance, but in all areas of life, not just financial, but the wave impacts our social life, our spiritual life, and more. So this idea of having a wave and to catch the wave at the right time just really seems like a great Australian metaphor and one we can all take to heart. So I have a lot more thinking to do on this metaphor, and I appreciated him sharing it with me. Another takeaway I had from my conversation with Miles was this idea that the rich do not have jobs. Let that sink in. They're all unemployed. The wealthy are all unemployed. However, the smart and the wealthy, the ones that are going to stay wealthy, have assets that pay them to own the asset. How many of us have assets that are actually liabilities? A paid off car might go on the asset side of your balance sheet, but it's not paying you to own it. The rich have assets that pay you a check for you to be the owner of that asset. So I do challenge each of you to think for yourselves. And I just love the creative discussion that Miles brought to our episode today. So thank you again, Miles, and thank you everyone for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join the financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.